feel naked up here without drums, but, but don't worry, they will be back. Uh, we'll have drums back next week. That was just a one-time thing, so uh, take heart. Drums will return. So we're glad you've chosen to worship here with us at Prairie View Christian Church this morning. Glad that you've taken time out of your week uh, to be here and sing these songs and hear from God's Word. Now, I thoroughly believe that a good understanding of core Christian doctrine is a must for healthy churches, and it's a must for healthy Christians as individuals. Thus, I believe that core Christian doctrine is something that we should be learning about and talking about and preaching about and discussing on Sunday mornings and in small groups and in all kinds of other places. Now, when it comes to preaching doctrine, there are lots of ideas these days about what kind of preaching is the most popular or the most entertaining or what kind of preaching will lead to the fastest numerical growth. And as a result, we might see a lot of preaching that sounds more like motivational speaking than actually delivering God's word. We might see some sermons that are more about self-help rather than so much a sermon. Many churches focus on things like 10 steps to a healthier marriage or five ways to raise good moral children. Some sermons talk all about politics, whether they lean to the left or whether they lean to the right. Some sermons talk about nothing but social justice. And while all of these things can be helpful and some of them can be appropriate for Sunday morning, sometimes we simply need to talk about doctrine. It might not sound like the most spectacular thing in the world, the most glamorous thing. You might even say it's not the sexiest thing in the world to preach about. And yet I thoroughly believe that we absolutely need it. We need to talk about what we as Christians believe, what the Bible truly teaches, and what that means for us in this life and what it means for us in eternity. We absolutely must take these things seriously. Now, we talked a little bit about doctrine last week. We talked specifically about the greatness of Jesus. We were in Hebrews 7, 1 through 28, and particularly discussed how Jesus is our great high priest. We talked about how Jesus is better than the law. He's better than the Old Testament priests. He's even better than that mysterious Old Testament character, Melchizedek. And Jesus, as our great high priest, allows us to draw near to God. And that's something the law and the old priests and even Melchizedek couldn't offer. And the author says that only Jesus can save us to the uttermost. Only Jesus can save us perfectly. Only Jesus can save us completely. Nothing before had that kind of weight, could make that kind of promise. Now this morning we're going to spend more time focusing on the greatness of Jesus, but even more specifically, we're going to look at Jesus' self-sacrifice. What does Jesus' self-sacrifice mean? What does it do? And how does it impact our past, our present, and our future? So with that, if you have a Bible with you, open up with me to Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1. If you're using one of our chair Bibles, this will be on page 863. And if you don't own a Bible, feel free to grab one from the welcome desk before you leave this morning. So Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1, but let's pray before we talk about our passage. Father, we're grateful that we can come here and freely open your word. We're grateful that you've given us your word, something that we so often take for granted. Um, 
Sometimes it's tempting to let our Bibles gather dust on the coffee table or on the bookshelf uh, in between Sundays, but it is truly an awesome thing to consider that you've revealed yourself to us in your word and that you've given us the privilege of opening it and reading it and understanding it. And God, I pray that this morning we would open your word and hear it and understand it, that you'd give us ears to hear, Um, but I also pray that what we talk about this morning wouldn't just be a lecture, wouldn't just be something that goes in one ear and out the other, uh, just pure head knowledge, but rather it would truly just take root in our hearts and our minds and our words and in our deeds. And God, thank you for Jesus, uh, just his incredible greatness, that he is our great high priest, that he allows us to draw near to you, and that he sacrificed himself on our behalf. God, as we talk about that this morning and consider it and reconsider it, maybe for the first time some of us are hearing it, I pray that you would just help us to be in awe of what it is that you've done. God, we love you, we praise you, we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we're starting in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1, but we're going to go all the way to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 18. And that is a lot of scripture to cover in one morning, but we're going to break it down into three different sections. Now, one commentator refers to these three different sections, these three different parts, as movements of a symphony. And as we look at each one of these parts or movements or sections, we're going to discover that they have some things in common. Each part begins with talk of a tent or a sanctuary, and each part ends with talk of a covenant. But in all three parts, right in the middle between tent and covenant, we see the same thing emphasized, and it's Jesus's self-sacrifice, right in the middle of all three parts. So let's start with part one, that's Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 through 13, if you'd like to look in your Bibles there. We're not going to read until we get to verse 8 of Hebrews chapter 8. But we start out in Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 through 13, talking about a tent, talking about a sanctuary, just like we mentioned it would. And specifically, the author is saying that there is a true tent, or a true sanctuary, in heaven, that is better than any tent, better than any sanctuary set up by man. Now, in the Old Testament, the tent or the sanctuary was extremely important. That was where sacrifices happened. We saw that in the tabernacle in the Old Testament, the tent. We saw that later in the more permanent temples. The tent and the sanctuary and the tabernacle, temple, whatever you want to call it, very, very, very important because that's where sacrifices took place. But we see in this passage that there is a true tent or a true sanctuary that is not built by human hands. We have a new sanctuary that the author of Hebrews is talking about. But not only do we have a new sanctuary, we also have a new priest. Again, Jesus is our great high priest. He is the greatest priest. But then we see something in this passage about what priests do. You see, to be a priest, you have to have an offering. You have to have a sacrifice. You can't call yourself a priest and then not have something to offer. So the question is, of this new high priest, Jesus, what is it that he offers? What kind of sacrifice is it that he brings? We'll get to that here momentarily. So new sanctuary, 
new priest, new offering, but we also see a new covenant. This new covenant, this new ministry of Christ is much more excellent than the old one. And we see that clearly starting in verse 8. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So the author cites Jeremiah 31, this beautiful prophecy of God giving people new hearts and new minds and sins being forgiven once and for all and iniquities being forgotten, just to establish the point that this covenant is so much better. This covenant can do things that the old covenant couldn't do. This new high priest can make promises that the old high priests couldn't make. We have a new sanctuary, a new priest, a new covenant. But again, the question still remains, what kind of offering will Jesus bring? What kind of sacrifice will he make? With that, we get to part two, Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 22. Again, we start off talking about a tent, talking about a sanctuary. But this time, the author describes the old tent, the old sanctuary. If you're curious about more of this, you can find this in passages like Exodus 25 and the few chapters that follow it. But here, the author describes the old tent. He describes the holy place and all its contents, the lampstand and the table and the holy bread. He describes the most holy place and all its contents, the altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant and the beautiful cherubim residing over the mercy seat. The mercy seat was where blood would be sprinkled when sacrifices were made. And if you remember that first area, the holy place, that was visited regularly by the priests. But the second area, the most holy place, that's the part that was only visited once per year on the Day of Atonement. And you hear this description, and you hear these contents, and you hear about this tent or this sanctuary, and you can't help but kind of think, man, that would be incredible to see that. It'd be incredible to see this beautiful old tent, this beautiful sanctuary, the tabernacle where these sacrifices happen, the mercy seat with blood dried on it from the sacrifices of old. Wouldn't it be just incredibly Awesome to see that tent, to see that sanctuary where all of these things happened with all of these incredible contents from the Old Testament. But for the author of Hebrews, he describes the tent as great as it sounds and then immediately starts describing the problem. 
with the way that all worked. The problem with that old tent. The problem with that old covenant. The problem with those old sacrifices. We see this in Hebrews 9, verse 9. According to this arrangement, the old way of doing things, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. So as beautiful and as awe-inspiring as this old tent was, all these incredible contents, as beautiful as those things were, The problem is this. Sacrifices made in that sanctuary could not perfect the conscience. In other words, those sacrifices only led to superficial exterior cleansing. The old way of doing things cleaned you up on the outside. It kept up appearances. That way you could participate in the community and perform all the right religious rituals. But the truth is that On the inside, deep down, you were still the same unclean, impure, sinful person that you were before. Because those old sacrifices, as incredible as they were, that old sanctuary, as ornate as it was, those things could not perfect the conscience of the worshiper. In the big scheme of things, they were insufficient. Then we get to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11. But when Christ appeared, things are changing now. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal Redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Now, we still hadn't answered that question yet. What kind of sacrifice will the new high priest bring? What kind of offering does Jesus have? We have a new high priest. If he wants to establish a new covenant, if he wants to christen the new sanctuary, then we need a new offering. And we see what that offering is in these verses. That sacrifice is himself. It's not a goat, not a bull, not some animal's blood. The sacrifice that Jesus brings is his own blood. That's the new covenant. That's what the new high priest does. That's the new offering in the new sanctuary. In your bulletin, you should have a small insert with several different blanks about Jesus' sacrifice. Several words that will describe Jesus' sacrifice. And we see the first blank here in these verses. 
what we first learn about this sacrifice is this. Jesus' sacrifice is different. It's that simple. Jesus' sacrifice is different. This sacrifice doesn't take place in some tent made by human hands, but before God himself. This sacrifice is different in the sense that it isn't the blood of animals. It isn't the blood of goats and bulls. The high priest offers his own blood. That's different than any other sacrifice before. This sacrifice brings about eternal redemption. This sacrifice offers an eternal inheritance to be called children of God. And this sacrifice that Jesus offers, his own blood, isn't just about some superficial exterior cleansing. This sacrifice goes down to the very core of our being. It goes far deeper. Because this sacrifice does what the old sacrifices couldn't do. This sacrifice cleanses our conscience. It cleanses our heart. Jesus' sacrifice is different. As we pick up in the passage, verses 16 through 21, again emphasize that the old is ending, the new is coming. The new covenant, the new high priest, the new offering, all those things. But then as we close out part two, we see in verse 22 a very important statement. We read in that passage, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, There is no forgiveness of sins. So the first blank was that this sacrifice is different. The second blank is that this sacrifice is necessary. The point is that without a sacrifice, Jesus can't be called our great high priest because priests make sacrifices. And without a sacrifice, there is no new covenant. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. The truth is that someone's blood will be shed for our sins, whether it's our own in punishment or whether it's Christ's in our forgiveness. If there's no sacrifice from Jesus, then we find ourselves in a bad state of affairs. If there's no sacrifice from Jesus, then that beautiful Jeremiah 31 prophecy about new hearts and new minds and sins being remembered no more... That prophecy is just some distant, faraway dream if Jesus didn't sacrifice himself. If Jesus didn't sacrifice himself, we're still stuck in internal uncleanliness and internal impurity. We may clean up on the outside, but on the inside, we're still the same old people. No new creation, no new forgiveness, no heart change, none of that stuff. If Jesus' sacrifice didn't occur, there's no eternal redemption. There's no eternal inheritance to look forward to. The point is that Jesus' sacrifice, the one he made for you and the one he made for me, was not only different, but this sacrifice was necessary. Because without his blood shed, there is no forgiveness of sins. We have a new sanctuary, a new priest, A new covenant, all confirmed by a new sacrifice. A sacrifice that is different from any before it. A sacrifice that is necessary for the forgiveness of sins. And then we get to part three. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 23 through 
18. Let's start reading in verse 23. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The third point in your outline about Jesus' sacrifice is this. Jesus' sacrifice is sufficient. Now, this could be several different sermons in and of itself, what we're about to talk about. But there are a few things that make this sacrifice sufficient. Number one, this sacrifice is substitutionary. In verses 24 and 28, we see phrases like, on our behalf and for many. The idea is that Jesus made this sacrifice for us, substituting himself on our behalf. The sacrifice is sufficient in that it's atoning. Verses 25, 28, 10, verse 4, we see phrases like blood and suffering and taking away sins. The point there is that Jesus paid the cost that the blood of bulls and goats couldn't pay. The cost that our blood should have paid. And third, this sacrifice is sufficient in that it is once for all. Verses 25 through 28 and 10 verse 1 stress the unrepeatable nature of this sacrifice. The point being that it only happened once. And so you put all these things together, that Jesus was sacrificed for us to atone for our sins once and for all. You put it all together, and it becomes very clear that Jesus' sacrifice is perfectly sufficient. It's not just different. It's not just necessary. It is more than sufficient. Let's pick up in verse 5 of Hebrews chapter 10, getting close to the end of the passage. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, 
Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. The author quotes Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8, making it obvious that what gives us hope is not that Jesus came and performed some religious ritual. What gives us hope is that he obeyed the will of his Father, even to the point of crucifixion. But we also learn that fourth blank about Jesus' sacrifice in these verses, specifically verse 10. We read that Jesus' sacrifice is sanctifying. Now, on the one hand, verse 10 says that we have been sanctified, as if it's something that has already happened. But if you look at verse 14, it says that this single offering perfects those who are being sanctified. The idea seems to be the already-not-yet type thing that we've talked about before in the New Testament. On the one hand, Jesus' sacrifice has sanctified us, has cleansed us, And yet, on the other hand, we're being continually sanctified and continually cleansed. Jesus' sacrifice sanctifies us in spite of what we've done in the past. It sanctifies us at this very moment. And at the same time, we look forward to being continually sanctified and continually cleansed in the future. The truth is that the impact of Jesus' sacrifice isn't just seen in that moment where someone makes a decision to follow him. The impact of Jesus' sacrifice is ongoing and progressive. It is a continual transformation. That as we think more and more about the sacrifice Jesus made for us, as we read the word of God and read about his blood shed and his body broken, that sacrifice changes us. It doesn't just lead us to a one-time decision to raise a hand or say a prayer. The sacrifice transforms us little by little, day by day, and methodically. This sacrifice is different. This sacrifice is necessary. This sacrifice is sufficient. And this sacrifice is sanctifying. It's different from any other sacrifice. It's necessary for the forgiveness of sins. It's sufficient for you, no matter who you are or what you've done. And it's sanctifying that it will leave you unchanged. It will not leave you unchanged. It will leave you transformed day in and day out, slowly but surely. According to the author of Hebrews, this is what Christians believe when it comes to Jesus' sacrifice. These four words. And the beauty of this passage is that if you are a Christian, if you believe these things about what Jesus has done, what was accomplished on the cross for you and for me, if you affirm these things, then you can look at Hebrews 10:17 and you can affirm that with confidence. You can know that that verse is true of you, that God will remember your sins and your lawless deeds no more, and that you have been forgiven. In the past, you were hopeless. In the present, you are forgiven. And in the future, you will be made perfect once and for all. And it's all because Jesus' blood was shed for you. His body was broken for you. 
And this sacrifice happened. And I pray that we as Christians would never lose sight of the importance of this teaching. The importance of understanding what it is that Jesus did for you and what it is that Jesus did for me. I pray that this would always have a central core part in everything that we say and everything that we do as a church. Everything that we say and everything that we do as followers of Jesus. I pray that this would always stay at the center. The same way it did in every single part of this passage. Let's pray. Father, sometimes we read your word, and maybe some of us have read it multiple times. We've read it cover to cover. We've underlined. We've taken notes. We've done just about everything we can think to do with your word. And yet, sometimes we read over the most profound and awe-inspiring and humbling things that we could ever read, the most incredible words that could ever be printed on a page. And that's what these words are today. I pray that we would never take for granted words like this about your son's blood being shed, about his body being broken, about the high priest offering himself as a sacrifice for us. I pray that we'd never lose sight of that. I pray that we would never have that fire die out. I pray that as we leave here, we would be just as eager and anxious and excited to share this truth with everyone we see, that we'd be just as excited as we were that first time that we read these words, that first time that we made this decision to believe and trust in you. God, thank you for this sacrifice. And again, I just pray that it would remain central to everything we say and everything we do as a church and as individual Christians. We love you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. If you have not yet made a decision to place your faith in Christ, I pray that you'd make that decision this morning. Make that decision to trust that Christ's sacrifice is sufficient for you, that it has done what other sacrifices couldn't do, that this sacrifice has reconciled you with God the way that your works can't do, the way that your morals can't do, the way that your religious rituals can't do. If you haven't made that decision yet, talk to one of our elders. They'll be standing at the sides of the room. They'd be happy to talk with you, pray with you, answer any questions that you have, and they'll be happy to do that as we sing this last song before we leave this morning.